Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Short Tales. For today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by my friend and author, Gabriel Bergmoser. Welcome, Gab. Thanks for having me, Damo. It's a genuine, genuine pleasure. I've been really looking forward to this to this chat. Um, quick bit of background for the listeners before we dive in. So you and I obviously met at, at uni doing a master's together. Um, master of screenwriting. We've pretty much been sort of crawling through the writing trenches mm-hmm. ever since, trying to scrape together a living. Which brings us to our topic. So, Gab, what's our topic for today? Our topic is writing as a job. Yeah. Love this. So what What sort of, obviously there's lots of things. With it. We always love talking writing together. There's so many different facets we sort of love chewing on. What was it about this one that made you go, I think I want to talk about this? Well, look, it was one of those things where when you sort of asked if I wanted to come onto the podcast and have a chat, I was mm. like, well, hell yeah, I do. But I started thinking about topics. And I was yeah. like, what do we talk about? What, what can we talk about that's interesting? What do we have, I guess, a perspective on that might be unique or might be fresh or might be valuable? Yeah. And of course, you know, I mean, you know, from our own, our, our many, many chats on these topics, you mm. know, we can talk structure and theme and character yeah. and everything until the cows come home and, you know, go <laughs> yeah. on for ages. Yeah. But I think that you and I are in very similar positions in that we both now make a living completely in our field. Mm-hmm. And that already puts us in the minority and mm. in a very, very lucky minority. Hell but yeah. beyond yeah. that, it also... We're both in a very similar position where we've used a lot of different means of income to make it work as Definitely. opposed to just kind of having like one set job. And yeah. I do think that there is a misconception sometimes when it comes to the idea of making a living as a writer mm-hmm. that, you know, it's like having one massive book deal that might, you know, yes. you know, uh, uh, keep you basically keep food on the table. Yeah. It might be like writing on one TV show. It might be this, or it might be this, or it might be this. Yeah. And that's probably how I used to think about it. Mm-hmm. But in in reality, like for as long as I've been making any money from creative pursuits at all, mm. it's been coming from a lot of different angles. And it yeah. took a while to kind of like figure that out and master that and work out how to run that in order to actually make a sustainable income on it. Yeah. And for, you know, for many years there, it was an income. It was yeah. a very good one. <laughs> right. But I, I guess I always kind of go back to when we were at VCA and- we got taught a huge amount about, you know, what to say in meetings, what to mm. do in meetings, how to handle this, how to pitch an idea, how to structure your story, you know, right. how to hone in on the theme, all of those things that are hugely, hugely valuable. But mm. the things that we never really heard a lot about were A, how to break into the industry For sure. and B, how to actually sustain a career as a writer. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the reason for that is largely because everybody's path is so different and there isn't really one yes, clear set yeah, answer. Exactly. It's not like other industries where, you know, you get qualified and then you go out there and you have an entry-level job and then you're in. Exactly, it's, yeah. It's extremely different to that. That's it. And like, so for, obviously I teach now at uni uh, screenwriting as well. So, and so often I'll have a student come up and be like, okay, so cool. Once this course is done, you're like, yeah, what, what do I do next? And I kind of like, well, that's up to you ultimately. Like I can't tell you, oh, just go to this place, put your name on the list and they'll give yeah. you, you know. And what's so funny about it, I think is the fact that when we left VCA, I remember both of us, I think we were, mm. I still remember this. We were on a train heading back after drinks, after some, I don't know if it was after like our graduation or something anyway. Right. We both talked about the fact that we just didn't know what to do next. Yes, you know, we were just definitely. kind of like, what what comes now? And we were bemoaning the fact that we weren't given any guidance mm. as to like, all right, you finished your course, you finished your master's, you have literally done the highest screenwriting qualification yes. in the country that you can do. Right. Now what? How yeah. do we get a job? How do we move forward? And it was like, it was a real point of, um, I guess, frustration for me at the Hell time. yeah. yeah. That we hadn't been given that guidance about mm. how to actually break into the industry. Right. And for a few years there, that remained the case until I guess I kind of like started to find my foothold in the industry right. and work out, well, the reason for that is that everybody's path is so different. Yes. And whether you come at it through, you know, 
the classic path of doing note-taking in TV writers rooms uh-huh. until you eventually get writing work, mm. whether it's the classic thing of just sending out, you know, query letters to agent after agent after agent after agent until you sell your book, yeah. whether it's, you know, coming at it through teaching or podcasting right. or whatever else. And I think in both of our cases, it's kind of in a mix of all of those things. That's it. That's but it. I just thought it could be really interesting and really valuable for your listeners and particularly for listeners who are interested in writing as a career and as yeah. a vocation. Yeah. And I'm really sorry for those who aren't because this is probably going to be incredibly <laughs> tedious to you to actually delve into that and actually just yeah. be honest about it and lift the curtain and look at the nitty gritty of like, how do you make writing your job? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I agree. There's like, like you even said, you've already sort of listed a few different paths you can take. And even I think what made that, that time so frustrating for both of us is that the people we'd sort of asked for advice didn't even give us those first, didn't sort of point out those different paths yeah. or sort of give us the first few footsteps to take. It was literally just like, I don't know, like, you, you, like <laughs> yeah. we got to like give us something. And like, that's the, ultimately there is like, it's always going to be on the individual to figure that out for themselves. Obviously different aspects, different jobs are going to work better for different personality types and all that sort of stuff. And obviously different opportunities are just going to come up for different people. But just sort of knowing that, there is like a pretty wide net you can cast in terms of those first steps. So I guess what might be good is if we kind of even give a bit of like, yeah, when you sort of said you started to find your footholds, what were those early footholds that started to work for you? Yeah, so it's, it's funny because I look at it now and I kind of go, there's a very, very clear... A to B to C to D. Yeah, kind of it trans- feels, yeah, 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 you yeah. know, kind of um, growth into into the industry. But, right. but the reality is that at the time it didn't feel that way. Like, no. you know, for most of the years until I guess my my breakthrough year, which I, I kind of think of as 2019, sure. I really felt like I was going in circles. Like mm, I really felt mm. like I was getting nowhere. And then when I kind of had the moment where I broke through and I was like, oh, cool, I've, I've got, I've figured out my place in the industry. I've figured out like how to actually sustain a career here. Right. I looked back and I was like, oh yeah, like- Everything very clearly led from one thing to yeah, another. Yeah, yeah, And so, look, for me, it was kind of a mix of things that initially happened simultaneously. So, I was writing from a very, very young age, you mm-hmm. know, from basically being a kid to being a teenager and everything. I wrote yeah. all through high school. I spent, you know, my first few years of adulthood kind of writing novel after novel after novel and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, emailing every agent in the country and being rejected yeah. by every agent in right. the country and then- you know, when that didn't work, I went to publishers and, you know, that didn't work and on I went. Mm. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of at the time I had this belief that I was missing something right? right? or that there was some hugely important key or approach or way of looking at this that I didn't yes. have. That yes. there was some secret I was lacking, yes. you know, yes. that, yeah. and I think that's a really common thing with young writers sure. where, you know, it is one of those things where, yeah, you can go and you can study and you can learn and everything, mm. but you always kind of wonder what sets apart the authors who are out there and are selling heaps of books and are doing yeah. well and are just, you know, published full stop right. from the rest of us who are just sitting here, you know, trying to write things, trying to put our yeah. ideas on the page and not making a hell of a lot of headway. Mm. And one thing that was said to me years and years later, like after we were at VCA, when I was kind of in a position where I was really frustrated and lost and just kind of starting to feel like maybe I wasn't getting anywhere, was right. that I reached out to this author who I'd met in high school who had been a friend of a friend who'd read a couple of my early manuscripts and given me a lot of feedback and advice. Yeah. And I kind of reached out to him very frustrated. And I was like, what do I need to do? Yeah. Like, what do I need to Give do Give me that here? secret, buddy. I know it's out there. And he just said to me, you're doing everything right. Yeah. And that blew me away because yeah, I was like, yeah. well, what, like... That's either really positive or really negative because <laughs> if I'm doing everything right, then maybe I just suck. Yeah. But like, and maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's me that's the problem and I'm sure. taking all the right steps. Yeah. But when he said that, I think that was the beginning of me realizing that there wasn't really this big secret to it. Mm-hmm. Like, it really is just a war of attrition. So, you know, yes. for me, it was yeah. most of my 20s, cold calling, cold emailing, doing all of that, and then kind of getting nowhere. Mm. I self-published a book in 2012, which, yep. you know, sold maybe 30 copies and, you know, was not a particularly auspicious achievement. Sure. I started producing theatre in 2013, yep. like writing and producing plays. And the reason for that was not because I had this burning passion for theatre. The reason mm. was because I was just like, I was at the point where I've been writing for so long and... I wasn't finding audiences for my work. Yeah. And because, you know, of course I wasn't sure. because my work wasn't very good. Right. And, yeah. you know, you, 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 you will find that when you're a young writer and you write, you know, big rambly manuscripts and you give them to your friends, mm. you know, they're not necessarily going to sit there and read them cover to cover. Most right. of them just say, oh, yeah, cool. I'll see if I can get around to it. And they just yeah. won't. Whereas theatre, you know, an hour of somebody's time to come and see a play mm-hmm. is a little bit of an easier commitment. Yeah. So I, I guess I started doing that and learned a huge amount of lessons from that. But, you know, theatre didn't inherently progress me. It just sort of taught me a huge right. amount. Same time as I was doing that, I was at VCA studying mm. and I started doing the podcast Movie Maintenance that we both did for a few years as well. Yes, we did. And it's funny, you know, because Movie Maintenance is an interesting one for me now mm-hmm. because I think that that was really the beginning yeah. of me being a working writer. Yeah, I love that. Or me being able yeah. to consider myself a working writer. Mm. 
And I have, I guess, complicated feelings about that podcast now because I'm so, so grateful for the opportunities that it gave me. You know, without Movie Maintenance, Boone Shepard wouldn't have gotten published in my first book. Uh, Boone Shepard kind of only got published because I had the audience for Movie Maintenance, I had the backing of Movie Maintenance, and that meant that when a friend of mine who wanted to start a publishing house came to me, Mm. she saw a potential benefit to it selling books, which it ultimately did. Sure. Not in, like, enormous numbers, but, you know, enough to make it a worthwhile But again, we're we're talking those early footholds. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the time, you know, every foothold like that that didn't blow up and change my life and make me, like, you know, an overnight Stephen King (laughs) felt like a failure. Yeah. But you look back now and you kind of go, actually, no, that that sort of did really help and that did really help. Hell yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you're looking at that that person you were at the time where you're like, why can't I find an audience? Why is it this so difficult? What am I doing wrong? Blah, blah, blah. Then all of a sudden you've written a book and it's found an audience. Yeah, it's yeah. not the biggest audience ever, but you're like, fuck, I need to stop and actually, and this is what so many writers who are like, you know, they're looking at the tip of the mountain and they've just sort of taken the first few steps, but it's huge that you're on the mountain at all. Exactly. You know? and, and that's it. And, you know, I think that what Movie Maintenance gave both of us mm. was an audience. It's, I mean, Hell just yeah. hit the nail on the head because prior to that, I didn't have an audience. Mm. I had... Friends who might come to some of my plays. I had really loyal friends who might have read my self-published book yeah, or read, yeah. you know, the manuscripts that sent them or whatever. But generally speaking, you know, I didn't have people who liked my work and came to it, not because they knew me, but because they liked my right, work. Right, yes. And Movie Maintenance gave us that. Yeah. And then from Movie Maintenance, you know, that's Springboard of Boone Shepherd. Mm-hmm. Without Movie Maintenance, you know, I wouldn't have written The Hunted, which mm-hmm. ended up being, you know, my first big novel in 2019. Yep. Basically the book that single-handedly changed my life (laughs) and you know i remember kind of getting to the end of movie maintenance when that show finished and being being really lost and really kind Mm. of just not knowing what came next because the other thing was that some of the time i was on movie maintenance was the time i kind of began to actually make a living as a writer and that came from a mix of things that came from me freelancing Mm -hmm. that came from me teaching creative writing at melbourne writer studio that came from the small amount of money we got from movie maintenance Mm -hmm. that came from the royalties i got from my books and my plays which weren't very much but were there yeah yeah none of those things by itself was a viable income but altogether yeah it was it was really really valuable and i think the linchpin for all of that was movie maintenance because Mm. that let me this is going to sound so hackneyed, but it's true. <laughs> it kind of let me believe in myself because, yeah, yeah, you know, I you got it. a lot of affirmation from audience, yes. you know, from your audiences and from your listeners mm. who would say, hey, that was great. That didn't work, you know, mm. and it was such a learning curve. And yeah, yeah. it's one of those things now where, I mean, I'm so immensely grateful that we had that opportunity oh, and yeah. that, you know, we got the audience that we got. Mm. What I'm not really as proud of that show anymore <laughs> because I think that there's just like, I look back at it and I'm just like, oh my God, there were just so many things where I'm just like, did I have to say that? Did I have yeah, to act right. that way? Did yeah. I have to carry on that way? <laughs> yeah. You know, because I think for so long I didn't realize anyone was listening. Yeah, and well, you re- that's it. Yeah. You also, like the, the experience is just like I am sitting around a table chatting with my mates about movies. Exactly. Something I do all the and time. And you don't filter yourself. And you don't think about yeah, it. And then suddenly yeah. it's like one small thing that you say or one like, you know, angry tirade you go on about a film <laughs> yeah. that happens to be a film that means a lot to people. Yeah. People start losing their minds about it. And For you go, sure. oh my God, like this is surreal to say, but what I'm saying actually does kind of matter to people. Yeah, and yeah. That taught me a huge amount about audience, about perception, about mm. how people perceive you and your work. Yeah. And, you know, early on in Movie Maintenance, I remember getting criticism for saying something or for doing a movie pitch that was bad or whatever yeah. and getting really defensive and angry about it. But right. as it went on, it kind of like balanced out because I was like, well, hang on, how can I get angry at being criticized mm. when the point of this podcast is criticism? criticism. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm sitting here <laughs> saying, well, you know, those Hollywood bigwigs should be able to take it. Well, if I want to consider myself professional in any way, I've got to be able to yeah, take it as well oh, and yeah, realize yeah. that some people won't like what Which I Which is do. like, yes, yeah, such a fucking great lesson. Like, so and important. A, and like a good like a good level to have that lesson. I do think probably obviously some other creatives out there might get that level of success, get higher up that mountain uh, and then really not have had to face any kind of criticism before. Totally. And it can it can really crush them. So like, yeah, Movie Maintenance gave us so much. Definitely, same as you, I've, I think that belief in self and like Absolutely. people hearing your idea for a story and going, yeah, I'd watch that. You're like, yeah. really? <laughs> like, that's awesome. And the thing is we leveraged it because- I realize that for anyone listening who doesn't know movie maintenance, the idea was that we fixed bad movies and we pitched alternate versions of movies Mm. or franchises that weren't working. Yeah. And that springboarded to like quite a few things for us. You know, we Mm. did movie maintenance presents. So we Mm -hmm. were doing like radio dramas and audio dramas on the side that were original and that were ours. Um, You know, we, we did books that kind of like leveraged off the back of it that we like either self-published or whatever, and then like sold to listeners and everything. And it did form an audience for our individual writing that was hugely valuable and there was some income coming from it as well. So, you know, it, it, it kind of feels like in some ways the years I was on that podcast were like a crash course for, you (laughs) know, for being a writer and thinking about how to present, thinking about how to come across, thinking about like, you know, the the people listening to the show as, as anybody who spent any time on the internet know Mm. if they love something, they'll, 
be very, you know, voracious about telling you. If they hate sure. something, they'll be very voracious about telling <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. And there's kind of no escape from it one way or another. Nah, and so you nah. just kind of have to you never any, You never get yeah. any comments that are just like, three stars, yeah, you guys are doing all right. I don't yeah, mind. No, like, never. It was really one or the other. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that was like... Such a roller coaster to it's go It's insane, on. Yeah. right? And you do just eventually kind of get to the point where you realize, okay, cool, I just have to be able to... You know, the criticism of my work isn't criticism of me. Yes, good call. And yeah, love that. once you figure that out, it's a lot easier to take it. Mm. Like, you know, like I had this thing recently where um, this book reviewer on, like, on social media and everything who's got quite a big following and who has been, like, hugely supportive of my work mm-hmm. and was one of, like, the earliest advocates of The Hunted and everything. Right. Reviewed one of my more recent books and was just like, look, The Hunted was amazing. I love The Hunted. Right. This just sucked. This was boring. This <laughs> wasn't very good. This just yeah. wasn't working for me. And I reckon the me of, like, five years ago mm. would have been like, fuck you, man. How dare yeah, you say yeah. that? You know, you've betrayed me. You've let me down. And now it's just right. like, oh, well, I really hope she likes the next one. Yeah. You but, know? like, even if there's even, like, a sort of an appreciation that, like, cool, you're taking each piece of work for what it is. Exactly. And, like, exactly. that's ultimately what you do want. You don't want to, like, sort of even, like, the listeners from Movie Madness who are saying really positive things. Like, part of that learning curve is to go, that's awesome. I'm so glad they're so positive. Don't let it go to my head. Don't make. Don't let it make me think. Oh, great, I'll just do the same thing for the next one, or yeah. you know, take the easier path because they love me. Whatever. And the same sort of thing as this. Every piece of work needs to prove itself and stand up on its own two legs. Yeah, and like, absolutely. yeah, I think having supporters who are or critics or anyone who's going to give you that honest feedback of like. Yeah, here's where I thought it was, you know, lacking, whatever. And then ultimately, it's still just their personal opinion. And of course, there was one great bit of advice I was given by um, our old lecturer at VCA, Ben Michael, yeah. who said to me. If you believe all your good reviews, you have to believe all the bad ones as well. Right, yeah. That and is good. I think for my time on movie maintenance, one of my biggest problems was that I did the opposite of that. Like yeah. every time somebody <laughs> told me, you're amazing, you're a genius, you're incredible, yeah. I took that on board and I right. let that bolster my self belief in my opinion and everything, of yeah. my opinion of my own work and everything. Mm, mm. But anybody who told me, you're an idiot, you're an asshole, how dare you say that, you know, right. we don't like your work. Or anybody who was just like, I just didn't think it was very good. Yeah. I'd be like, screw that person, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> and consequently, it was like, I realized that my whole sense of self-worth was actually incredibly tied up in that podcast. Right, and so when it right. ended, like, yes. I was just like, I don't, like, I'm not getting this constant stream of affirmation of my work. Right. And that kind of forced, that actually forced me to this real, I've never spoken about this before, actually. Mm, but it kind mm. of forced me to this really weird place of being like, I, I have to actually work out who I am outside of... Great. The guy who's on that popular podcast and has yes. an audience and everything. And that forced me to realize for the first time in my life. And again, mm. it's one of the amazing and, you know, one of the many, many valuable lessons I took from that show mm. was it was the first time I had to be like, I'm not my work. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not that podcast. I'm not defined by what I did in that podcast. Mm-hmm. I've actually got to be, you know, a complete, stable, solid, <laughs> functioning human being yeah, outside yeah. of this. and. Yeah. That's made it easier for me to, figuratively speaking, when it comes to, like, my current work, Mm. go home at the end of it. Yeah. And to kind of switch off and just say, you know what, like, in case of The Hunted or The Inheritance or Mm. True Cover or White Lie or whatever, some people will love them. Some people will hate them. A lot of people will just be in the middle of it. And none of that is a reflection on the human being I am. Definitely. Or my capacity to do the work. Yeah. It's just a reflection on that individual thing. Exactly. Like, one thing, another thing that we sort of... I think we collectively figured out as well two movie maintenance and me going forward into sort of more critic work as well has been like everyone's allowed to have their own opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, at no point does it either diminish or increase what the work actually is. The, the work will always just be what it is. Yeah. And then people's opinions, positive or negative, is exactly that. It's just their opinion. And, you know, that was one of the craziest things about doing that show was, you know, around time I was doing one of the other jobs I was doing simultaneous to yeah. movie maintenance and freelancing and everything else was that I was doing criticism. I was doing mm. online criticism of movies and TV shows. Yeah. And doing my creative work, my critical work, and then something like Movie Maintenance, which met both in the middle, yeah, kind yeah. of gave me a huge amount of perspective on criticism yeah. and on creativity. And, like, I've got... I had a friend who did a play recently, and the play was not very well received. Mm-hmm. And this friend, like, I spoke on the phone to them, and they were, like, going on a huge tirade about mm. how this reviewer was an asshole, and this person was a dickhead, and this had it in for them, and whatever and stuff. Mm. And I'm just kind of like, I think you need to take, take a bit of a step back and be like, you know... If you know that you put everything you had into that work, Mm. if you know that you did the best job you possibly could, then you can be at peace with whatever the response is. Right, Because the response likely is that the person just, it just didn't speak to the person for one reason or another. Yeah. But if if you really have thought through every possible angle of what what you're trying to do with this piece- Yeah. Then you kind of have nothing to worry about. Yeah, you've like, already, you've already achieved what you like sorted it, you know? to achieve. Yeah, and I do kind of believe that you know bad reviews hurt the most when you agree with them. Right. And Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. a belief I have. A lot of people kind of push back on that. 
But I don't know. I don't have any resentment towards critics now because I mm. know that, like, I know from having been a critic, you know, you don't come at criticism because you hate something. You come right. at criticism because you love something yep. and you want to be able to engage with it and work out why it's working, why it's not working, mm. everything. And I actually do think in a lot of cases, the onus is on the creatives mm-hmm. to recognize that and be like, yeah. just because somebody doesn't like my work mm. doesn't mean they're an asshole. Mm. It just means they don't like my work. You know, do I think I'm an asshole because I don't like the newest Star Wars movie? Right, or exactly right. Like, yeah. how, how is that, you know, does that make me a piece of shit for kind of yeah. being critical of one thing? Yeah. But anyone who's critical of me is a bad person? Yeah. Like, that's like, and, and it's so funny how few creatives like actually look at that dichotomy if that yeah. makes sense yeah and yeah. I, I really do think for the purposes of professionalism to bring it back to the topic which we've wandered quite mm. far from <laughs> that critical thinking that being able to separate yourself yeah. from the work and to realize yeah you're doing a job and it's going to mm. be for some people it's not going to be for other people you've got to be okay with that yeah, you've got to exactly. have that separation yeah yeah so something you also mentioned was sort of which i want to sort of dig into a bit more because i think it's it's arguably one of the, one of the more valuable things we'll hopefully say in this in this podcast is that thing about how you sort of Cast a wide net, you're doing lots of different things all at once to to make a living as a writer. So when for you was it that when was it for you that you kind of figured out, oh shit, I I can't just be writing novels and trying to get them published or writing scripts and trying to get them out there. Like I need to other than just need to get money in my pocket. Yeah. Like when did you sort of go, oh no, I need to do all these things sort of simultaneously? Look, I don't think there was ever a one crystallizing moment where that yeah. became clear for me. I think that was a gradual, slow realization. Mm. And I think what happened basically for me was that it was around the start of 2017 where I got a, not a massive, but but, but by my standards at the time, a pretty big commission job. Right. And it was one of my first ever paid writing gigs. It kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. And I still had a day job at the time, but I just remember having that like lump sum of money that kind of gave me like a two week buffer basically (laughs) of not having to have anything else come in. Yeah. And I just had this moment of being like, Okay, so I'm doing movie maintenance. I'm getting a little bit of money from that. I'm mm. doing freelancing work. I was using Upwork at the time. And like, yep. I was doing the most like degrading freelance jobs, dude. <laughs> I was like, I was writing Amish erotica and like <laughs> billionaire romances. And I like, I've spoken about this in other things before. But yeah. you know, like I, I, one of the ones that made me feel the dirtiest was like this guy's like screenplay that was basically just propaganda for Bitcoin. I oh, novelized. <laughs> um, like it was, it was miserably depressing stuff. But honestly, in my mind, I was just like, well, it's either this or I'm a bartender, you know? So right. like, yeah. And in my mind, I was like, look, at least this is practice, right? Exactly. And, yes. And yeah. it taught me something that I will come back to just about mm. writing as a job, which, you know, I think there's a couple of different layers to that statement that I want to dig into a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, it was like, it was the mix of all of those things. And then, of course, the plays and the criti- the criticism mm. and the books and everything. And I kind of looked at it and I did some maths and I was like, I think, I think I can do this. Mm, that's like, exciting. I think I can do yeah, this. I know yeah. I have to tighten my belt a little bit. Sure. But I just think if I make sure that I'm doing as much freelance work as possible, if right. I make sure that I'm podcasting as much as possible, if I make sure that I'm taking every opportunity that comes my way. Yeah. And I'm trying. I'm working to sell books. I'm working to get more plays out there. Mm. And I'm doing as much teaching as possible because I was doing creative writing tutoring at the yeah. time. Yeah. Then every stream of income I have will be writing related. Love that. And I will no longer have some set important, you know, some set day job that I have to rely on yeah. to eat. Yeah. Now here's the thing. I made that choice. I did that, and it it worked. Yeah. It worked for a while. Mm. There was a point towards the end of that year where it was a mutual friend of ours, actually Simon Howe, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure Simon wouldn't mind me saying this, but Simon is like a very in demand and very successful illustrator. Hell yeah. Yeah. And Simon and I had this conversation where he spoke about him hitting a similar point where mm. he basically was like, I think I'm just going to do illustration work now. And right. he was freelancing and he was doing this and he was doing that and he was doing that. But then it got to a point where the money wasn't coming in for, for one reason or another, the money right. wasn't coming in. Yeah. He wasn't getting jobs. Things had dried up mm-hmm. and he was kind of like, okay, I have to go back to, you know, I have to potentially go back to my day job. You yeah. know, I have to go back yeah. to what I think it was like waiting tables or something. Right. And he, Went back to his old restaurant. And he was like, I know that they'll let me back if I mm-hmm. want to go back. And he went there and he did one shift and he was like, I'm not qualified anymore. <laughs> like, I don't remember how to hold a tray. I don't remember yeah, how to serve right. food. I don't know how to use the new systems. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know how to do any of this anymore. Mm-hmm. And it hit him then that he's like, oh, no, I'm an illustrator now. Right. I've like, thrown and, my hat into that yeah, ring. And I have to it. make my money doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And that was this weird case where he sort of said that and that really stuck with me. Mm. And then a few months later, movie maintenance ended. And yeah. that was like- what I didn't realize had been such a major stream of income for me suddenly went. And that's the dangerous thing about freelance, about working as a writer and having to rely on all these different things is Mm. that if one falls through, 
you'll suddenly find that's like a wheel coming off a car and you're yeah. like, I'm suddenly like, I don't know if I'm going to eat this week. I don't know. Right. You've not- kind of got to put a new wheel on while the car's exactly. still running. And figure out a way to <laughs> yeah. do it because you then realize I've got all these other responsibilities. Like, you know, it's not a full-time job, but if I want to successfully, you know, if I want to keep this balance going of freelancing and teaching yeah. and doing plays and doing books and whatever, mm. then I actually don't have the time anymore to go and wait tables or work in a bar or yes. whatever. It's yeah. like either I go and do that and get rid of all the progress I've made in actually achieving my dream. Yeah. Or I just have to like somehow tighten the belt and make it work for me somehow. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was one of those things where the money we made for that podcast was not much. Mm. But when it's that with all these other things, yeah. it's important. Yeah. And that was like a real like slap in the face moment where I was like, I've got to find something to make up for this. Yeah. And so, you know, it I still of, needs to be within that writing absolutely, world. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, I was like, all right, what are my qualifications? Like, mm-hmm. that was kind of what I had to start on was, <laughs> yeah. all right, what are my qualifications? And basically, I start, I took a couple of opportunities that came my way about, like, you know, basically doing creative write, writing workshops in schools around the country. So, I yep. started doing that. And I just started freelancing more and just taking on even more degree yeah, freelance right. jobs. <laughs> and that was kind of just, like, how I kept myself afloat yep. until I got the book deal for The Hunted. Yeah, lovely. But it really was that thing of being, like, I'm not qualified to do anything else anymore. Right. I've been, you know, only doing writing work for a couple of years now. Yeah. If I try to get a job in a bar, mm. why would they hire me? You know, I haven't worked <laughs> in a bar for, you know, even, even like before I, you know, quit my day job, I was in retail. Like I right. worked in a bar for four years at that yeah, point. Yeah, I'd yeah. worked in retail in two years. Nobody was going to hire me again no. to do those things. <laughs> so I had to kind of find a way to make yeah, up for it yeah. with writing. And that's, and that's the sometimes the unglamorous reality of this yeah. industry. Yeah. And I love that too, because it is kind of like there's both a benefit and a cost to sort of getting to that point where you're like, I'm I'm betting it all. It feel that sounds like more grandiose than it actually is. It's sort yeah. of like you said, it was this sort of growing realization. It's the fact that you were did have these multiple streams of income, everything like that. Because for me, it was sort of similar. Obviously, I was uh, I worked in in labs and that sort of stuff, science stuff, and then I moved from that into doing like more just working for universities. And I knew I wanted to like at the start, I was working full time after our course. And I knew I wanted more time just to work on my own stuff. I knew that if I didn't have some time just working my own stuff, well, then how would it ever be something I could yeah. potentially sell one day? So great. I finally, I got a different job that was like four days a week. Cool. I've got one day a week for writing. And then eventually I'm like, all right, if there's another position opening, I'm going to go down to three days a week. So now I've got two days for writing. But then while I was doing those three days a week, I was doing similar stuff to you. I took up some work, obviously, at the Mel Young Writer Studio teaching. Obviously, we're doing the podcast and, you know, a few other little bits and pieces to sort of not even necessarily to help my income because I don't know that they did that much, yeah. but just to sort of get me out in that world. Because again, like you said, it's always the time part is the tricky part where obviously, yes, hell yeah, you need money. But time is also so crucial when it comes to writing or any, any work related. So as soon as you're putting time into something that gives you money, it's time you're not putting into the writing stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so finally, same same sort of thing as you. I was still teaching. I was still podcasting. And then I got an opportunity to to lecture at the uni. And that was sort of the tipping point for me kicking off those three days a week. And it was, I kind of knew the, I knew that it was a big decision to make. It was a big leap. Luckily, I've got an excellent partner, Holly, who was more than willing for me to do so and, and sort of help support me, which definitely that meant I had a safety net. But it like, I kind of knew that taking this step that as much as like, I kind of convinced myself, oh, well, look, if it doesn't work out, I'll do it for a year and then I'll, yeah. I can go back, you know. But part of me at the back of my head thought, well, no, you. What's the point of doing that? Like, yeah. it does feel like again, if we use the the mountain metaphor, if I've climbed halfway up the mountain, I don't have to climb back down it's, again. There's also like, is it a fallacy of sunk costs? Like, right, I, you exactly. Know, yeah. Am I yeah. going to fall off a cliff partly up the mountain? You know, <laughs> yeah. It's- and that's it. And so this is where, like, yeah, there's a there's the benefit to like, holy shit, I'm making my living as a writer, uh, freelancer, and you know, all the sort of it's both exciting and interesting and all that sort of stuff, but it's like fucking dangerous in the sense of, Hugely. like you said, you could lose a wheel at any point. You can, might lose all your wheels. And this is where like diversifying, which is really what we're talking about, is so useful because yeah, you might lose a stream, but hopefully it's not like if you just had one stream, well, then that's it. Well, you, you only also- had two, that's half of it gone. Exactly. So the more you have, especially in those early days, um, but no, sorry, not even in those early days, fuck that. Like still today, like obviously, yeah, as you go forth with your career, unless you become Stephen King, yeah, you still probably want a couple of different streams. One, it's more interesting as well. But, totally. But two, just so it just means that, cool, if one of them does fall off for a bit, you're still good to go. And look, the thing of it is as well that like, I mean, obviously the position I'm in now is very, very different to the one I was in yeah. back, you know, when we were at uni or doing the podcast or whatever. And like, I'm doing really well with my books and everything. Mm. I'm getting quite a bit of screenwriting work. But honestly, the stakes are higher, sure. And mm. it looks a lot more glamorous from the outside, but- I don't think what I'm doing now is really any different to what I was doing four years ago in mm. terms of just doing as many different jobs as yes. possible. Yeah. Like, here's, here's my theory. Like, 
when I talk about writing as a job, mm. I genuinely believe that a lot of writers don't think it's a job. Right. I think that a lot of writers genuinely believe that it's some mythical vocation that yeah. makes them special. Yeah. And God, I dislike that way of thinking. <laughs> like, I saw this article, and I know this is a complicated issue, and I don't want to wade too far into it sure. because it's like, I know that there are a lot of counter arguments, and if if that was the topic of the podcast, sure, it might be different, but yeah. it, it's more an attitude thing that annoys me. I saw this article in The Age recently that was basically advocating for why the government should pay artists a living wage. Right. And it was like, it was basically saying, this is why, you know, the government should be paying artists this much per week to like do their art and everything and blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that way at all. No. I looked at it and I'm like, no, you you need to be making things that people want to pay for. Like, I mean, yeah, it's like, to, to me, it's like if you earn your dues, like whether it's freelancing, whether mm-hmm. it's podcasting, whether it's doing whatever, and then you want to, you know, do the classic one for them, one for me thing. Or you get to the point where you're like, you know, a Scorsese or a Jane Campion, and you're mm. such a like shit hot auteur that you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Then you have the right to make things that are purely self-expressionistic mm-hmm. and all of that because you're going to make money from it because you've got a following anyway. Yeah. But to me, it just seems incredibly arrogance Mm. it seems i could be so wrong on this there could be so many ways in which i'm not thinking about it in the broadest way possible yeah but the the, the point at which i tipped and started to become successful Mm. was the point at which i was like how do i sell my skills right you have to think of it the same way that you would think of like if you were a a plumber or a a waiter or anything yeah being like what skill set do i have and how do i sell that yeah and to me the start of the the, the, you know the start was movie maintenance where i was Mm. like okay cool i understand story Mm. and i understand criticism and i love film yeah all of those things kind of come together in me doing this podcast Beautiful. But beyond that, when it came to freelancing, I was like, okay, cool. I know how to write. You know, mm. I can I can write decent enough prose. I can write fast. Yeah. And I can write relatively polished stuff fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. I can sell that to people who want ghostwritten things. Yes. And some people who want copywritten. I can do all of that. Yeah. And I understood that, you know, I would have to do a couple of jobs that were like as bad as like 3,000 words for 30 bucks type right. things. Yeah, yeah. So that I could get the rating up. Yes. So that I could start getting the bigger jobs, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, great. But p- because I guess like- there were so many disappointments in those years mm. that I, I couldn't really have like this ballooning ego about my ability as a writer mm. because there were just there was always something around every other corner to disabuse me of that notion. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. basically I was like, all right, cool, you know, I this is a job. This mm. is a skill set that I have, and I have to somehow apply that and be like, what can I sell to the clients? Yeah. Like, you know, HarperCollins are basically a client. You know, they hire me to write a book sure. and I write a book. You know, yeah. it's the same whether it's um Vertigo or Stampede or Beyond or any of the companies I've worked for. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like even the other day I was invited to join the writer's room for this new TV show. Mm-hmm. And that's like I'm like I'm flattered that I'm even asked and yeah. I love that. Yeah. But my thought on that isn't like, oh my god, I'm so incredible. My thought's like, I swear I got another job. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the thing is I'm I'm ultimately still a freelancer. Mm, like that's yes. actually how it works at the end of it. I I joke all the time that I don't have a job. Right. Because I'm ultimately still a freelancer. <laughs> and I only, you know, keep a roof over my head and food on the table mm. as long as I keep getting work. Yeah. And as long as I keep being able to give my clients yes. what they want. Right. And if I can slip some like, you know, so HarperCollins want like an action-packed pulpy adventure novel, mm-hmm. or, you know, action thriller novel. I can write that. It becomes more valuable to me if I can slip some, you know, depth and self-expression. Put a bit of a character and study into in, all, there all of in there and all that stuff in there. Of course, yeah, that's yeah. what I try to do. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, I know that the readers who I have, and of course, the moment you have an audience, mm. you also have an obligation to them as well. So I know yeah. that, you know, my audience and my readership want a certain thing from my books. Mm-hmm. And I saw that firsthand when I wrote The Hunter and The Hunter did really well. Yeah. And I followed up with True Color, which was this, you know, introspective, you know, coming of age dramedy story right. about a teenage boy's struggles. Yeah. Could be more different to like, you know, exactly. the, the, you know, the <laughs> explosions and gunshots and decapitations and everything of The Hunted. <laughs> and of course, you know, I had all these people being like to me, hey, when's the next book coming out? When's the next book coming out? I'm yeah. like, here it is, True Color, Little White Lie. <laughs> and of course, it didn't do nearly as well. And sure. none of those people responded because it wasn't what they wanted from me. It yeah, wasn't what they yeah. were paying me for. Yeah. And that's fair enough. You yeah, know? yeah. Like, it's yeah. disappointing because I love True Color and I, you know, I, still hope it kind of grows and finds, finds an audience finds and its own audience yeah it's exactly in its own terms mm. but i can't expect the people who are paying me for one thing mm. to be happy when i give them something else sure. that is kind of a more self-indulgent project for me you yeah. know yeah and so when i read articles like that i kind of go well you're looking at it all wrong think about it in a more like you know broader business sense mm. where it's mm. like you know how can i sell what i do yep how can i sell what i do to build an audience and then once i've done that yeah. start doing the more self-expressionistic experimental yes things. yeah and and that's it I, I really do think your first step to finding any success a writer is don't think it's this mythical vocation. Don't right. think that you're special. Don't yeah. think that you're any better than, you know, any anybody else, any other industry, anyone else out there. You're not. Yeah. You're not. You have yeah. a different skill set. And if you can apply that skill set well for a client who will pay you, mm-hmm. then you will do okay. But you are never you you ultimately, unless you are Stephen King or whoever, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you are a freelancer. Right. Just accept it. You are a freelancer, yep. you have a skill set, you're doing a job. 
it's a job. It yeah. doesn't make you special. That's it. It's not this big romantic thing. It's a grubby no. little. It's a grubby and we little know job. That because yeah. we've been in the trenches. You said yeah, at the start. Yeah. You know, we've been through the. You know, we've waded through the absolute shit of writing. <laughs> we know it's not glamorous. You know, yeah. you tell it's, me that it's. You tell me that it's fucking glamorous when you're writing Amish erotica and somebody's. You know, <laughs> fucking Bitcoin fantasy. Right. Like you know, it's. It's not that burgeoning industry of Bitcoin erotica. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that was probably you know the logical endpoint had I kept doing this. <laughs> But yeah, your point is great. Like, and I sort of one of the notes that I was, which you basically mentioned, is sort of saying yes to things and taking opportunities, not because it's like, oh, this is going to fulfill my artistic desires, because it's it's going to allow you to be a working writer. And I think like the idea that you know the the place you are now, where obviously you're getting books published, you're working on TV shows and movies and this sort of stuff, even though the work you're doing is different, the job itself isn't different no, from that point when you're writing Amish erotic. And that's like, exactly yeah. it. And that's like, that's what I want. If, if anyone takes anything away from this podcast, yeah, yeah there's, you know, there's more money. Everyone it's, should be writing Amish erotica. That's the one hey, takeaway. I recommend it. It's a, you know, it's a path. It's not a great path, but it's, you know, it's not a fun path, but it's a path. It's you a know? path. Yeah. It's, um, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, look, I don't know. It's just, it's a, I, I think that's kind of the crux of it. And just being like, don't, just don't think you're better than anything. Yeah, yeah. Don't think you're better than anything. Don't think you're above certain jobs because if you're doing the job, and, and this is my ultimate thing, you know, mm. I was talking to a, a director friend of mine the other day about him being in a writer's room with basically some writers who clearly thought they were above the material. Right, And right. to which I'm like, well, if you're doing the job, you're clearly not above it. Yeah, because guess what? You're like, here, mate. You're here. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's like, I'm sorry, but like, if you have taken a job, yeah. whether it's out of necessity or mm. whether it's out of growing your career or whether it's out of anything, by definition, you are not above it <laughs> because you have to do it. Right. So shut up and do it well. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know? Do it as good as like, you can, yeah. And that's yeah. it. Just don't like, and I've, I've known actors who, like the amount of times I've heard anecdotes about actors who are good and they're well-trained and they've mm. done everything and then they refuse to do commercials. Right. Because they're like, no, no, I should be the leading man right away. Yeah. And it's like, well, good luck, mate, because, yeah, yeah. you know, you've got to do you've got to do those small things and work your way right. up. And it's the same with writers who think they're going to sell, you know, the next major bestseller tomorrow mm-hmm. and they don't think they have to write Amish erotica yeah, or yeah, teach yeah, yeah. or whatever else. Well, whatever it is, exactly. And that's the thing. It's like, I think the sooner you sort of embrace that side of it of like, well, one, it's like any thing like especially for art it's like well you're not good enough yet actually like and i think the sooner you sort of say that to yourself and even if it's like you've got to apply the malcolm gladwell um what is it ten thousand hours rule yeah, yeah, yeah. go all right have i done ten thousand hours definitely not that's a fuck ton of hours all right i better start doing some stuff can i get paid somewhere along the line for those ten thousand hours even if it is you know thirty dollars for three thousand words yeah okay great that's good that means i'm actually getting a few dollars while i'm getting my way up to that ten thousand hours or whatever level totally. you set for yourself and, and that's that's kind of how i thought about um about my freelancing Right. Was that I was just kind of like, okay, so I freelance for a bit. I don't, I'm sure Rodica. And um <laughs> and basically I'm like, it's all practice. Mm. Like it's not wasted. It's not like it's 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 not demeaning, it's demoralizing, but it's not demeaning. Right. It's like yeah. I'm not above it because I'm doing it, so shut up. There it is, yeah. But you know, uh, but I'm I'm making some money doing it, I'm doing all that, and I'm learning, and I'm getting better, yes. and I'm improving yeah. all along the way. And this is another contentious thing that 
I know that there are valid arguments against it. I'm just expressing my opinion on it. I'm mm. not. I'm neither right nor wrong. It's just yep. my opinion. Yep. Coming back to the early thing about criticism. <laughs> but it's like whenever I see those little comics that you always see in the arts industry where it's like, oh, we're not going to pay you in money. We're going to pay you in exposure. And the right. artist says something like, oh, my rent's 500 exposures. How good's that? And I'm like- yeah. When you're starting out, it's not offensive to be to work for exposure. Right. It's really not. Like, I didn't get my first paid writing gig until I was, God, like 26, I want to say, or mm-hmm. somewhere thereabouts. Right. But before that, you know, I did heaps. I mean, I wrote for youth theatres. I did independent theatre stuff. Yeah. You know, I did heaps of stuff for free mm. because I wasn't good enough to be paid yet. Right. And, you know, to me, it's like, well, cool. I spent most of my early 20s doing work for free and it wasn't good work. Mm. And that's fine. It didn't It didn't have to be paid for. Yeah. And whereas, you know, then you fast forward to even just a couple of years ago, somebody reached out and asked me to write a play for them and they, mm. they pulled out the old exposure card. And they were like, oh, you know, we can't yeah. pay, we can give you heaps of exposure. And that's a point where I can just say without any arrogance, but just with full awareness of where I am, mm-hmm. uh, not to them, but my thought is, well, I'm above that now. I don't have to do that yeah. now. Like, yeah. you know, I get... I get paid. I can right. sell my work. And I just said very polite. Said, oh, look, I'm sorry. I'm a bit too busy. Hope you find someone. Yeah. Great. And that's fine. I wasn't yeah. offended by that offer mm. because, you know, that will be a great offer for some up and coming writer who needs to learn. That's it. Yeah. And that's fine. And it's ultimately just up to you to get to the point where you're confident enough to just say to those jobs, well, no, I don't have to do that anymore. Right. But in those early days, like, yeah, you might have to do some stuff because it's an opportunity to learn. It's it's an opportunity to get feedback. It's an opportunity to interact with people and have your stuff out there and ultimately, yes, get exposure. Because good, now you're one step further up that mountain. And also, you know, I mean, don't don't discount how important perception is as well. You know, mm. I had um, I, I remember being at this event for HarperCollins a couple of years ago, and one of the other authors came up to me and was like, "Oh, I had a look at your website, and you know, it's like I had to pause reading all your credits because you know <laughs> there are so many of them." Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, so I'm like, "Yeah, on paper, it looks like I've done a huge amount, right?" But like a lot of it was just like you know, community or youth theater projects mm. or things like that. That I got paid nothing for. Yeah, yeah. And like there was a point where like HarperCollins, I think, included some of those things in like one of the bios in one of my books, right? And I was like, yeah, you might want to take that out though. Because like I put that in, I put that in my bio assuming nobody knows what it is. Right. And it's just like like I think I, I think I said that like I'd won some award or something. Right. Which I had, but it was like a like rural, like, you know, local award yeah, for like, yeah. you know, the, the the Mansfield Fair like <laughs> short story award, which of course I abbreviated to the MF whatever. Yeah, Very some, nice. It wasn't yeah. exactly that, but it was something along those lines. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And there's a few things like that where it's like, you know, you you choose how you frame like like mm. or you know, the classic one is that Everybody always says that, like, or it's put in all my bias. It's like, you know, he was nominated for the Kenneth Browner Award. No, mm. I was long listed for the Kenneth Browner Award. Right, yeah. But technically, that's a nomination. Yeah, nominated so, sounds better. Know, yeah, yeah. Perception's really important. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, you can, like, or, like, you know, I think I've put in a lot of my bios, like, quotes from, like, the time The Age reviewed one of my plays and said right. something really nice. Yeah. And, of course, I always put that quote, quote in things. I'm just like, oh, The Age said this thing about my play. Mm. It was a two-star review. <laughs> but, you know, but, of course, you still frame it that way. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, and so when you, when you like, if you're on your way up and you're looking at, like, writers who seem really impressive and mm. you're looking at all their credits being like, oh, my God, have they done all of this? Yeah. Like... You know, that's just how look, they've look done a little it. bit closer because yeah. a lot of it's probably bullshit and that's fine right. you've got to bullshit right. because like the more that you come across as somebody it mm. really is that fake it till you make it thing the more yeah. you come across as somebody who like is this kind of showy professional mm-hmm. then you know the more people are likely to take you seriously yeah just be aware that if you are the emperor with no clothes they'll find out very quickly sure so you've got to know that you've got the skills and the ability and the passion to back, to it, back up. it up yeah well that brings me nicely to another topic i was hoping to talk about which is sort of the hustle hustling yeah. you have to be a hustler i'm like Again, like I said, for my students to sort of say, oh, Damon, what do I do next? And when they, like, when I first got asked that when I was teaching, I was like, oh, I guess it's my, this is what I wanted as a student, right? Like you mentioned earlier, we wanted someone to show us the path, tell us what to do. I was so dead keen to work. And I know that these students are too. They're like, I'm so ready to do this. I just don't know where to go, right? So I kind of felt this big urge to be able to tell them exactly what to do. And I obviously couldn't, that's an impossible thing. And so kind of like, you know, thinking about it later, I'm like, well, the thing I want to tell them is like, one, it's up to you in terms of how much are you going to get out there and and do all the stuff we've been talking about. And, but ultimately the, the real word for it is hustle. Yeah. You got to go out there and hustle and maybe the hustling is, you know, doing those upwards jobs, or maybe it is doing something for exposure or whatever, or maybe it is going into reviewing or going to teaching, whatever, like whatever, like it's just about doing anything you can kind of think of that's moving towards the mountain. There's this Neil Gaiman quote, I'm using mountain analogies a lot in this episode, but there's this great Neil Gaiman quote where for him coming up in his career, he talked about every time he sort of had a decision of, do I want to take this job or not? It was like, does it get me closer to to the mountain? The mountain being his ideal sort of working environment, which obviously, yeah, he's peaked that mountain. I think we can fairly confidently say that. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing all right, young Neil. He's doing okay. I see big things in his future. (laughs) 
Um, and so it's something that I've taken with me ever since. And even like for me and my wife, even if it's just our personal goals, nothing to do with my writing goals, we still sort of stop and say, does it move us closer to the, yeah. towards the mountain? And so like ultimately in those early days, the mountain is so far away, almost anything you say yes to is going to get you that little bit closer. And so that's when you've got to kind of say yes to everything. You've got to hustle. You've got to put yourself out there. You've got to put on your own plays. You've got to make your own web series. You've got to start a website and put some stories on there, like whatever it is to to move you slightly closer to that mountain. And then the closer you get, well, that's when you can start to like the hustle becomes slightly different because it now is a thing of me taking this job, is it actually getting me close to the mountain or is it my sort of taking sideways steps? Yeah. And so I think kind of what we're getting around is like those early days, there's lots and lots of different things that get you close to the mountain because at the moment, you know, we're near the fucking mountain. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. it's on the horizon. So any step is going to bring you closer in that direction. And that's where, you know, yeah, in the early days, you do have to say yes to things that aren't the ideal thing, but you also got to recognize you're not near the mountain yet. And yeah. in this analogy, that means you're not talented enough to be standing on top of that mountain. Yet. Yeah. And that's just a hard reality every creative has to face. And I love that you say that because I, I really do think that like there is this misunderstanding, I think, uh, the term believe in yourself. There is a misunderstanding about yeah, that term. Yeah. Because people say that and it sounds like it sounds like a Hallmark card thing. It sounds like, you know, <laughs> yeah. believe in yourself and you hear that and you roll your eyes. Like, mm. you know, and I still do it when people like, you know, when people comment on things that I post being like, you need to believe, you know, believe in yourself and everything. And I'm like, oh, shut up. Yeah. However, you actually, you, you do have to. And the reason I, but what I want to stress is that I don't think people quite understand mm. how pathologically insane believing in yourself actually is. <laughs> because believing in yourself to succeed as a writer, yeah, that, that's like, you have to do that. Yeah. But you also have to believe in yourself when like, Every little bit of evidence is telling you that you are barking up the wrong tree. Right. When people aren't taking you seriously, when you're not getting jobs, when you're getting passed over, when you're not being looked at, when people yeah. are laughing in your face, when yep. all of which has happened to me, mm. when you're getting terrible reviews, when you're getting all of this stuff. Mm. And if you are somehow able to maintain belief that you can do this mm. through all of that shit. Right, right. You are a pathologically insane human being, <laughs> but you kind of have to be, yeah, you know? Yeah, reality needs to take a little step to the side yeah, while I pursue and, this. You know, it's like if you can couple that with a healthy sense of, you know, realism about yourself and about being like, all right, that didn't work. How do yeah. I do that better? How do I improve? How mm, do I learn mm. from that? You know, you've... And look, for all of us, like, you need your ego to be punctured. punctured. Yep. You know, you yep. really, really need your ego to be punctured, like, a lot. Yeah. I, I, because, you know, if, if that doesn't happen, it gets, you, you'll get out of control. And, sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember my, um, the week that changed my life when The Hunt had sold to HarperCollins right. and the, the film rights sold and everything. I remember my agent calling me and she was just, like, telling me about everything. And I was like, you know, and I was really blown away. And I was, yeah. like, going to dinner with some friends and everything. And she was like, are you, she was like, because she, she called me outside of workouts. And mm. she was like, sorry, I know it's, like, at night and everything. I just want to mm. make sure mm. you're okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> And she's like, yeah, you just seem very calm. Right. And I was like, well, it's just because I won't believe it until it's happened. Yes. Like, because I've just been through yeah. that much, yep. like, that that many, like, near misses mm. project-wise mm. or career-wise that I'm like, this is amazing and I'm excited. But I also know how quickly anything can fall apart in a second yeah. because I've seen yeah. it. And I don't – my sense of self-belief, you know, yeah, I believe that I can do it. But mm. I also know that, like, just because I'm in a good place now doesn't mean that there aren't going to be more failures and yeah, more, sure. you know – things where I fall short and more disappointments. Like it happened to me, you know, there's things I was talking about before off air about like a mm. recent project that I was working on really hard and really believed mm, in and put mm. a huge amount of work into. And then like for the most arbitrary of reasons, it fell apart at the last minute. Right. And that, that happens. That happens. Yeah. That's, you it. know, yeah, and yeah. I think in a weird way, things like that are good because they kind of just remind you that as well as things can be going for you, mm. you're not this incredible, unimpeachable genius. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah. You're just somebody with a skill set that you've worked to develop. Yeah. And sometimes that skill set's going to be enough and other times it's not going to be enough. And yeah. sometimes you'll fall short and yeah. that's going to keep happening for the rest of your life. And that's yes. yeah. okay. Just do better yep. next time. That's it. And like, I think even like to follow on in that believing in yourself is like, it's not, I believe I'm the greatest thing out there. It's, I believe I can be better. Yeah. So when you yes. get a criticism, you're like, thank you. Now I'm going to take a little step closer to being better. And how like, do I improve on I that? I believe in the potential of me, but I'm also aware that I'm not there yet. Yeah. And like having though, being able to hold that dichotomy in place is very powerful. It's really going to allow you to keep a positive, the positive mentality you need to, to keep hustling and keep working and keep saying yes to things and keep doing all the shit we're talking about while still also believing one day this is all going to culminate into yes. a career, which like, you know, ultimately it does. And it might not even be that crystallized ideal king of the mountain career that we're talking about where it's like publishers or TV execs or whatever throwing all the money they can at me to make whatever my little brain desires. But it is going to be 
I'm I'm making a living off of writing or writing adjacent work or whatever it might be. Like I have the potential to achieve that yeah. and hopefully more. But yeah, having that belief in yourself while also tampering it with, but I'm not there yet because I'm not there. Like it's yeah. ultimately like if you were, you would be there and that's great. And I hope you, like for all my students, I kind of generally want them all to outstrip me. I want their, all their yeah. careers to be bigger and better than mine because they've all got the potential, but the ones that are going to do it are the ones that are going to be able to have that realization, do the hustling that's required, yeah. take those hits that are required and still have that ultimate belief that, cool, if I keep working and keep improving, I'm gonna, that's what's going to get me up the mountain rather than someone handing it to me on a silver platter. Exactly. And you're just just kind of like, you know, being um, being willing to just do the shit kicking jobs and to do yeah. everything and just not, not think you're above anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's kind of, if, if you can have that mindset at the start, you know, believing that you can be better, believing that you are capable of achieving this. Yeah. While being able to know that you're not there yet, being humble enough to know that you're not there yet, yeah, yeah. and being willing to do the job, the work to get there. I mean, like I've I've spoken before in like blogs and interviews and everything about mm. this. This one of the most pivotal turning points in my career was a review of an early play of mine that tore it to absolute yes. shreds. You yeah, know, yeah. Famously, like you know, or famously, insofar as anyone who knows about my career knows about this review, right. because you know. And it's funny because people still say, oh, you got to get over it. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm glad that I never got over it because like, because yeah, yeah. it was the most kind of humiliating thing when, you know, I did that play in this early point in my life where everybody just kind of was like, oh, you know, you're doing like, do this, believe in you, like blah, 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 and everything. Yeah. Nobody was actually holding me to account or criticizing me. And it was me. also that stage in your career where it's like, because you are new in this, in this arena, like putting on a play is huge. It's like, yeah, that's like, holy crap, you put on a play. It doesn't even matter if it's good or bad. Yeah. That means you're standing out and you're doing really well and you've already achieved something, which you definitely fucking have. Yeah. But the next step- And that's the thing. It's like in and of itself. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Doing the play was an impressive thing. And then the play comes out. It gets like torn apart mm. by this big review, like really like absolutely torn apart. I'd never had that experience before. Right. I read the review. I was like, I don't know how to handle this. And yeah. again, it was that thing where it was like, it hurt because it was true. And yeah, yeah. It, it made a lot of really good points I'd overlooked. Mm-hmm. And it hit me then. I was like, all right, well, I want to be seen as a professional. Mm. And up until now, I've been just happy to put things out there and just assume that yeah. everyone will like it because they're impressed that I'm doing it for exactly yeah. that reason. But yeah. they're, they're looking at it through the amateur writer lens, exactly. which is not a bad thing. It's not derogatory. Not no. We're all amateurs at one point. And then, but if you want to play with the big boys, which is what happened with this review, this guy comes in, he treats it professionally, he tears it to shreds on that level. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I had to look at it and I had to kind of critically be like, okay, well that hasn't worked for me. And then, Mm. you know, I, I I went back to the drawing board, I reworked, I figured out my approach. I Mm. did all of that. And then I think two years later, I had another play go on and that same reviewer came to see it. And I remember right. seeing his name come up and I had sleepless nights. Oh, I was yeah. like, oh, no, 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 no. God, I think I've gotten better, but I've only got my own word for that. Like, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I don't yeah. know what's going to happen. And I was so scared. Mm. And he came in, he reviewed the play and he gave it a really glowing review. Awesome. And then I got positive reviews like my next few plays from that same guy. Yeah. And then when The Hunted got acquired, I saw somebody who I knew shared it and this guy mm. commented being like oh yeah i've seen a lot of his plays he just gets better and better every time yes. and i'm like so now that that to me and you know a lot of people when that first review came out was like oh it's just one person's opinion and i was mm. like yeah but it's a bit more than that when you agree with it you know yeah, when it's actually right. kind of struck a chord with you yeah. and you kind of go you know what like that was right mm. and i'd actually value it because this person was honest right and this person proved there that you know this person was not willing to um you know mm. accept mediocrity and, and that's it like, they're almost holding you to the stand like they hold one they're holding you to the standard you really are trying to go for. So they're holding to your standard. They're actually kind of saying you can do better. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing because it's kind of like, all right, cool. You know, if you want to be the little fish in the the big fish in the little pond, yeah. you know, if you want to do that and if you want to kind of just sort of, you know, like, and I've had plenty of those opportunities mm-hmm. in my career and I've, I've sometimes my detriment, I've turned away from them. You know, mm-hmm. like I've had cases where I, you know, I came up in the youth theater scene before mm-hmm. anything else. And, you know, I was doing regional youth theater productions i was writing plays for them yeah and i was getting like a lot of affirmation from the cast members and everything from the mm. parents who came and saw them and stuff and i loved all of that but i was just kind of like well i i, I want to get bigger you know i yeah. want more and i made choices to leave those communities that were safe and they right. were accepting and yeah. go into like bigger ponds where the fish were not as kind no and you know and that standard of work wasn't good enough and it yeah. was like okay well i have to shape up or ship out you know mm. i have to get better yeah if i want to put my work out there and invite critics to see it and be lauded as this incredible playwright yeah then i've got to be this incredible playwright the only way to do that right right is to you know listen to the criticism and try to improve and try to get better yeah. and just to kind of realize that like this is the thing you know a lot of creatives hate critics but mm. you you actually need them yeah because yeah. they hold you to account yeah yeah and again it's just kind of like if you stop viewing creative as being a creative as this mythical thing where it's mm. like the critic should come in and see your incredible spiritual genius playing <laughs> out on the stage or in the book or whatever, mm. stop looking at it that way and just be like, okay, you know, have I done a good job? Have I not done a good job? Yeah. This is my job. Am I 
meeting my requirements? Mm. Am I hitting the standards I need to be hitting? And, you know, criticism is always subjective. And, you know, you can always read it and say, I don't actually agree with that. Yeah. But I argue you can only really do that if you've read it and thought about it and Mm. considered it. But ultimately, you know, don't don't view them as your enemies. View them as yeah. your friends. Yep. You know, yeah, exactly they right. kind of are. That's it. And I think, like, that kind of brings us nicely to the sort of maybe our last point that I was hoping to talk about, which is, um, you know, putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I remember having this listed into my mind where after that, because uh, I'm definitely an introvert, I'm sort of more on that end of the scale. I'm sort of an extroverted introvert where I can happily, fairly uncomfortably, you know, be social and enjoy that sort of stuff, but it does ultimately drain me sort of mm. thing. Um, and then I also do get very nervous when I'm going outside my comfort zone. So moving from like literally working in labs, which is like a very cushy comfort zone, you're literally just with the same group of people, literally in this building in the same place every day, wearing the same clothes every day. Uh, and then moving into freelance, which is obviously that's pretty outside my comfort zone because there's no security. Yeah. You're constantly having to sort of job interview always, right? Like obviously job interviews are really stressful. As a freelancer, you're kind of constantly needing to prove yourself to a new person every other day, you know? And so I remember having this one where I was literally just going in for a um, note-taking job and I was on the train and I was so nervous because it was my first note-taking job with a proper production company. And to be honest, I had no idea what to do as a note-taker because then no one had really told <laughs> yeah. me. So I literally, and I don't think I did a very good job either. But I remember on that train ride in, me going, feeling all these feelings and going, oh, I'm going to have to get used to this. This yeah. is going to become the norm, right? Yeah, man. And it was like such a like eye-opening revelation. And it's like, it wasn't a comfortable realization, but it was one that I was like really glad I had because- that continues to be the case to this day. Like I had a meeting last week, my guts were churning before this meeting, you know, like it went great and that's good. But like that doesn't necessarily go away, but by acknowledging it and just be willing to put yourself outside your comfort zone, recognize it's outside your comfort zone and then go, good, I must be doing something right. Right. I'm outside my comfort zone. If you have that, like that churning guts feeling and Mm. that kind of that terror before you go into something, that means you're progressing. That means you're not stagnating. It means you're not sitting in the same place being like, right, cool, this works. Right. It's like, you know, I mean, I had, yeah, like I had a similar thing recently where, you know, something came up that mm. I was like, huge opportunity. Yeah. But I was terrified. I almost didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm quite happy. Like, I'm, you know, I'm doing well. I'm writing my books. I'm doing a bit of TV work. You know, it's fine. I'm yeah. kind of getting along fine and everything. But I knew that this was something that like could, you know, yeah. really, really take me to the next level. Mm. And it was the fact that I was scared and the fact that I almost was like finding excuses not to do it. Right. Which is like such an embarrassing thing to say because yeah, like, you know, yeah. it was it was amazing, but it was just kind of like... That's how I felt. I was almost like, I, I almost hoped I got COVID before. Yeah. Like just an excuse because I was so scared. Yeah, Like yeah. I remember actually thinking that like I had to take a test a couple of days beforehand and I was just like, part of me almost, and of course, like had I actually had COVID and not been able to go right. and whatever, You'd then like I would have looked back and would have been like, you know, shit. Yeah. But yeah. of course I went and I was terrified and I kind of came back and I was like, oh God, I'm so glad I did that because, yeah. you know, you you have to. And yeah. I, I think you're spot on, you know, that discomfort, you know, mm. that churning guts, you yeah, know, yeah. bone deep terror. That means you're doing something right. You exactly. were spot on. I've never yeah. thought about it like that, but it's yeah. completely correct. Well, even like, so Scaredy Boys, the other podcast I do, we did our first live show not too long ago. And uh, I hope Sean doesn't mind me mentioning this. I'll maybe check with him before I release this. But before the show, he kind of, he was obviously feeling a bit nervous. And he said, Damon, what are we doing? And I kind of just said to him, like, well, what's the benefit of not doing it, though? Yeah. Where's the, there is no benefit to going, actually, you know what, we're not going to do it. We're just going to stay in the, be the big fish in the little pond. And same for that meeting that you had, same for the meeting that I had. I'm like, well, me not doing it, because I definitely feel the same thing. Maybe I just say no. Maybe I just yeah, go, oh, yeah, look, yeah. never mind. And I'm like, but what's the benefit in not doing it? There totally. isn't one other than I stop feeling this brief moment of anxiety, yeah. you know. But I know that's only temporary. And I know that, in fact, the adrenaline that comes after the meeting, of even if it goes bad, just having it done sometimes yeah, feels totally. like, you know. And I always just think for these things, you're like, well, even if nothing comes of it, me having this nerve wracking meeting is still a notch in my belt that I can be like, yeah, yeah. I once met with Amazon or whatever it was. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That's fucking awesome. Like, that's so cool. That's the thing, like when I walked out of this, this meeting that I'm talking about, mm. like, it was the same thing. Like, I went and even like going into the meeting, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, yeah. oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> like sweaty palms. Like, you know, I would have been like, you know, sheen of sweat yeah, on my face. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, and then I just kind of went in there and I did it and I walked out of it and like, I just, I, I kind of just like was like, did that? Did that just happen? Yeah, yeah. And then like on a you know on a quieter note, I was like, did I just nail that? Yeah, I think I nailed that. <laughs> and I didn't, but like you know, I, I just kind of walked like walked out of there, just like absolutely buzzing, being like, if like if if this goes nowhere, mm. that just happens. Yes, yeah. And yeah. that like that will always have just happened. Yeah. And 
fuck, I'm glad I did that. You yeah, know, that's like, it. That's it. Oh man. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, it's it's so funny because like I, th- I literally think until you said that thing, mm. I'd never thought about that before. About like before how many of like the of the, the meetings or things that have changed my life, mm, mm. I felt absolutely terrified yeah. and kind of just looking for a way yeah. for it to not yeah. work out. Yeah. But how did de- how devastated I would have been had. That's had it. That Had you happens. sort of given in to that urge totally. to sort of back away? Yeah, yeah. All right, dude. Well, we better stop it there. But this has been such such a nice chat and hopefully useful for some of the listeners out there. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on and joining oh, me. Dude, thanks for having me on. It was great. It's been great. Uh, all right. Well, if you'd like to see more of Gab's work, I strongly suggest you head over to his website, gabrielbergmoser.com. Uh, not only can you find links to all his novels, but there's a bunch of awesome blogs on there as well, often full of good writing advice. Similarly, you can subscribe to his newsletter to keep up with all the exciting things he's doing, which you can do at gabrielbergmozart.substack.com. Or you can find him on Twitter at gobergmozart, and I'll also pop all these links into the show notes as well. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at middaypajamas, or feel free to send me an email at shorttales.podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Short Tales, and I've been Damien Robb. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.